Today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. And what we saw last Sunday was the victories that Christ won at the cross as a result of his sufferings and sacrifice. The world looks at that and says, you guys worship a guy who was crucified. But they don't understand. You know, Jesus resurrected from the dead. He gave gifts to men. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And only those who are scoffing or their eyes are blinded to the spiritual truth of Christ's death and resurrection. And we saw the subsequent victories that we also, because of his sacrifice for us, that we can win. And today, the Apostle Peter is going to continue to use Christ's sufferings as an example in our life. So chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, the Apostle Peter says, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Now watch the transition here. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now he's talking about men or women, of course, not Christ, because Christ didn't sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So therefore, in summation, because Christ suffered in the flesh, and we saw that in chapter three, Peter connects that with what he's reading, uh, what he's writing today. For, uh, chapter four, we shouldn't live in the flesh. Now there's a little play on words here because of the word flesh. Uh, the body proper is soma in the Greek, where we get the word somatic in the English. However, this word that was used is sarx, which can mean either the literal body, the flesh, or the desires. Now, in Jesus' example, the word was used to mean his literal body. He suffered in the flesh, crucifixion, uh, everything that he went through. But for us, it means our bodily desires, our fleshly desires, really the frailty and weakness of human nature. So understand that. Jesus' sacrifice gave us an example of what it means to kill the flesh. And we therefore arm ourselves, the Greek word is haplizo, and I'll come back to that, with the same understanding. In other words, haplizo, if you are familiar with uh, Greek, uh, the Greek army and, and history, they had what was called the hoplite soldier, a variation of this word. And that was a Greek foot soldier who was armed to the teeth. He was their main warrior. So we arm ourselves with the same information, seeing what Jesus did, and having the same mind as Christ. Uh, we, we, what he does, we do. We emulate our Savior. So now, in transition, we have the ability to cease from our lifestyle of sin. We no longer have to fulfill the lusts of, of men or women, but to live for God. We have a new nature. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. So whatever your vice is, Whatever you come here with, maybe it's your first time visiting and this is the first time you're really going through the Bible, whatever your issue is, whatever your addiction is, whatever your vice is, you don't have to live that way anymore. You have the power to be free from sin if you want, but it is only through the cross of Christ. You don't have to live anymore in the uh, stereotype of what others know about you growing up or your life and they've cast you. You don't, have to, you don't have to cast yourself anymore. You can be free from the shackles of sin. We can say this. I am a child of God and God loves me. God freed me from the shackles of sin and it doesn't matter what people think of me. Now say that again and mean it. Because not everyone has realized that, right? There's so much power in the cross. There's so much freedom in the cross. You know, and we're, we, we get lied to sometimes. We lie to ourselves putting ourselves down when God has freed us from those things. 
Verse 3. For we have spent enough time of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in licentiousness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So Peter gives a list of some of the things they, his, his audience, and we today did prior to being saved. Maybe if you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Right? Now that we're born again, we no longer have to do the following. And we'll see what all these have in common. Number one, licentiousness, wantonness, really understood as the aggregate, the sum total of all vices. Two, lusts. And it's that longing for the forbidden for no other reason except that it satisfies the carnal nature. That, that lust, that desire for something, that once you have it, and then it's, it, it, you know, you're, you're past it, you say, why did I do that? Because it filled some carnal desire that you just had to have, or maybe just for the fact that it was forbidden fruit, so to speak. Three, drunkenness, intoxication, being high, opening the door and opening yourself up to acts that you normally wouldn't commit if you were sober, the proverbial morning after. Wake up from a hangover or some type of a social event and maybe you got carried away and took it a little bit too far and you say, what did I do last night? I hope nobody remembers because I don't want to remember. Uh, four, revelries, carousing, riot. Five, drinking parties, that's self-explanatory. And six, interesting, abominable idolatries, idolatry and image worship. It almost seems like it doesn't belong there, but we'll, we'll connect the dots. What do they have in common? We open ourselves up, we have a purposeful state of mind where we open ourselves up to a lack of self-control and an altered state of consciousness, where we push God as far away as possible and open ourselves up where the flesh is completely filled. And if you carry it far enough and you do it long enough, you open up yourself to demonic uh, entities to use you as a host. Right, so that should be an eye-opener. I've had uh, prodigals come to me, uh, maybe come from a good Christian family. They, they come to me quietly, and they just want to talk to me. And they say, and I've heard this at least from two that I've dealt with over the last six months. They've said, I feel like I'm going crazy. And I said, well, in your condition, that's normal. <laughs> you know, you, you come to church and maybe make a profession of faith, and then you, the next day you go right back into your vile, sinful lifestyle, and then you come back to church, and then you go back, and then you read the Bible, and then you go back. The mind wasn't developed to handle that. You're the rope that's trying to hold the, uh, the connection between the demonic world and God's kingdom, and that rope is going to snap. We weren't designed to do that. Now, I don't want to uh, freak you out because I'm going to say some things today and it doesn't mean that we can't sin as Christians. I sin as a Christian. Every day I, I ask the Lord for forgiveness for something. But when you make it a lifestyle, we covered that in 1 John, know the difference. We're going to sin as Christians. We, just, we hope we don't and we try not to, but we can ask forgiveness. But I'm talking about those who, who play with the things of God and play with the things of the devil and go back and forth. And some have gone insane. There's a teaching out there that says, well, don't be concerned about shunning activities. Don't be concerned about bad behavior because it's under the blood. Well, they have it backwards. Because we are under the blood, we shouldn't want to shame our Lord and Savior. We shouldn't want that example to be out there of Jesus Christ doing these activities. In the Amish culture, there's a term called rumspringa. I don't know if you've heard of this. 
But in certain sects, they allow the kids, when they become teenagers, they actually encourage them, in some, not all, to go out from the community, to drink, to even do drugs, or, you know, sow their wild oats and, and all these things. And they let them do this for a time and encourage it. And then say, well, when you're done, decide whether you want to come back to the community or go out into the world. First of all, if I lived on the other side, right? I didn't grow up knowing the Lord. After coming to the Lord, I wouldn't go back to that life. So if you truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ, why would you want to do something like that? It makes no sense at all. Verse 4, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. These are your former comrades in, uh, in these activities. Now, how many have been through this? <laughs> Please raise your hand where you run with a certain group of friends and then you come to the cross and you, you know, you don't want to shame your Lord and Savior and they keep trying to get you to come back to do what they're doing and there's this tension between you and your old friends. And, and again, I think there's a school somewhere where they learn these phrases, but I've heard this, what are you too good for us now? <laughs> How many have heard that? Okay. You know, it's, it's just amazing. Now, what happens is we become torn between trying to please the Lord and hold on to friendships. But the truth is, if they truly are our friends and we have changed and we want to please the Lord, they should accept us for who we are. And if not, they're really not our friends. And I'm not saying this stuff is easy, but the good news is I can tell you from firsthand experience after some 15 years go by and I still know them and some of them have stuck around and still been my friend, uh, but they see that it's not a fad and they'll respect your convictions. And furthermore, those that have been, been in the lifestyle for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and they keep banging their head against the wall, and they keep filling their flesh, they may come to you quietly and say, you know what, my life is not fulfilled. What is it that you do? Why are you happy? Why are you content? So they may actually come to you after a certain amount of time and say, gee, I'm not happy. You seem to be happy. What is the difference? What is the key? What's the secret? And of course, we know it's Christ. Uh, so that, that's a, a pretty neat thing to see. Now, there's a um, kind of a, a, a joke that kind of goes with this. And it's, please, I'm going to tell you up front for the Bible students, it's not theological accurate, all right? So don't jump on me for that. But there's a guy, and I'll just butcher it a little bit. There's a guy, and he dies. And he, uh, the angel meets him and says, you know, you can either go to heaven or hell. And uh, the guy goes, all right, well, show me heaven. So the angel says, going up. They go up the elevator. It opens up. It's a lot of cloud cover, a lot of harps, bling, bling. People look peaceful. It's nice weather. It's beautiful. And the guy's like, oh, this is really nice. He goes, well, show me hell. So the angel takes him in the elevator. He goes down. He opens up the doors. And as soon as he opens up the door, it's a sandy beach. Everybody's in great physical shape. It's a sunny day. Everyone's partying and the music's pumping. And, you know, it's like, gee, I didn't think hell would be like this. This isn't so bad. So the angel says, listen, you've got to pick one and you can't go back to the other one uh, when you've made your decision. So the guy goes, listen, I don't mean to offend the man upstairs, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay down here on, in hell. So the angel goes, okay, you're going to go down in the elevator yourself. The door will open and and have at it. So the guy goes down the elevator, the door opens, and there's a foul stench. And it's, it's terrible weather, and there's skeletons littering the beach, and everyone is, is crippled and tormented. And the guy goes to the devil. He goes, uh, hey, man, what happened? This isn't the same place that I just looked at a, a moment ago. And the devil goes, yeah, but before we were campaigning, this is the real thing. 
<laughs> Good political joke. Uh, but here's the truth. Sin looks good, feels good. I'm not going to deny that. It, it'll fill a part of you that's, that's fleshly, that's carnal, for a time, and then it'll leave you high and dry. I'm sure when, when the devil told Eve, you know, take a bite of that fruit, she's like, you know, we're not supposed to touch that. And he goes, look, it looks good, it smells good, it tastes good, and, uh, you know, what God's not telling you is you'll, be, you'll know good from evil, you'll understand everything, you'll, you can be like God. So she convinces, he convinces Eve, she takes a bite, mm, not bad. Adam comes by, and this is my rendering, hey, Eve, what are you, she shoves it in his mouth. <laughs> and he takes a bite and goes, wow, honey, this stuff's pretty good. So right away, not a big deal. They were still alive. They knew good from evil. You know, the only thing that was different was they had to kind of cover up their, you know, nakedness, but not a big deal. This is great until the consequences came. Until the Lord came looking for them and the fellowship was broken. The father who walked with them through the garden, probably hand in hand, uh, because there was perfection. Now he's like, where are you? What's happened? What's going on? Why did you do that? A broken fellowship with God, banishment from the garden, travail in childbirth, the man having to break up the ground and now everything doesn't come easy anymore by the sweat of his brow and the thorns and thistles and eventually they do die. So sin is enticing for a while, certainly is, but it will leave you high and dry. You will always try to chase that initial feeling that you got when you started the sin. I've talked to many heroin addicts, they always try to chase that initial high. They cut it with all types of drugs and they, they, they ride this fine line between death and, and chasing that initial high and they never get to it. I've met mothers on patrol, you know, taking them back and forth to the prisons who have lost their maternal instincts for their children because of heroin. So this is what sin does. It doesn't have to be heroin. It could be the sin of pride and self-deception. So these are some very important things to see that he's speaking about. We don't we don't want to do that anymore. We want to please our Lord. Verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, this isn't, you know, you guys are picking on me and making fun of me, so let me read this verse to you. No, we grieve over this. We don't want to see anyone perish, especially those that, that we love. But the truth is, there will become a day of reckoning if we have rebelled against the Lord and his way of salvation. Verse 6. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, for this reason, speaking about the situation, looking back, remember, many were fearful at that time, and even today, of the afterlife, especially if you come from Roman or Greco-Roman culture. The gods were scary. The Roman gods, the Greek gods, they were nasty, they were mean, they were unloving. They were vindictive. So the fear of the afterlife was, was apparent. And if you look at the Apostle Paul or Peter or even Jesus in his writings, it's, there's much explanation about the afterlife to take the fear out of it. Now, preach to those who were dead. And I believe that this means in Christ. In other words, the temptation would be for other people to see, well, you call yourself a Christian. Your mother is dying of cancer and you know, your brother died last week and there's no difference between me and you. What he's saying is that we are all judged according to the flesh. We are attached to this sin component in our flesh and the flesh must be judged and the flesh must die, okay? 
We can't take this with us. The second thing is that, but we live with God forever if we're under the blood. So you can't see it when a person uh, passes away. You can't see where they go. But we know that they immediately go to be with the Father. So, so far we have Christ's sufferings opening the door for salvation and a spirit-filled life. And we also see a change in lifestyle. Now let me jump into verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. The changed lifestyle has to result in proper treatment of each other. So this is where we now have those interpersonal relationships. The end of all things is at hand. Remember, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, there is really nothing left on the prophetic timetable to take place before the Lord comes for his people. So it could could have happened back then. It could happen in our uh, lifetime and in our generation. And in our prayers, what do we want to be praying for in the interim? We want to be serious and watchful. What we want to pray for is not necessarily a celestial wish list. Every morning you wake up and you you tell God the top 10 things that you want on your, your, your Christmas list. No, we're more serious in our prayers. We think about those that we love that don't know the Lord, that are uh, in, in a bad way. They're in a bad lifestyle. And we know that they'll be judged if they pass. So we want to be serious and watchful. And verse 8, he says... Above all things, have fervent love for one another, and love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, again, in the Greek, there's many different words to express love. In English, we have one word, love. In chapter 3, we covered philadelphos, which was that brotherly love, right? That comrade type of love. And here, we speak about the agape love, although you don't see it in the English come out. Love will cover a multitude of sins. In other words, Love does help, especially when we're wronged. When somebody wrongs us, uh, there could be sin against us. But if we have that agape love, uh, it really does help to cover a multitude of those sins. We also know that if somebody does sin and we're close to them, we don't condone the sin. But again, if we love them enough, we're not going to let it get out. We're not going to tell everybody else about that person's sin. We certainly don't want it being paraded. We want it to be covered And we want the person to help to deal with that sin, but we don't want to humiliate them. So love does cover, and there's so many different explanations that that you can make for this. Uh, Verse 9, and be hospitable to one another without grumbling. I find this humorous because uh, sometimes we do things grudgingly, don't we? I see that with my 10-year-old. You know, he does it, but he's not happy about it. You can tell by his facial expressions. And even as believers, sometimes we can be big kids. You know, we do things, and maybe we do things that are biblical, but the heart isn't right. You know, we're kind of grumbly about doing that. So he says, you know, don't do it without grumbling. If you're going to serve somebody, don't do it because you feel forced to. I even think of 2 Corinthians 9, 7, when the Apostle Paul speaks about uh, giving money. He goes, if you're going to do it grudgingly, keep it. You know, God doesn't need it. Don't do it with a grudging heart. Verse 10. As each one has received the gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So mature believers use these gifts, these gifts of the Spirit. And the word gifts in the Greek is charisma. All right, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's funny, the sum of the play on words and the double meanings as it goes from Greek to English. Uh, we understand the word charisma, and I'll get to that. Uh, so we do that to glorify God. And we're used, uh, with these gifts are used to serve each other. That's good stewardship. 
Now, there are those that may be charismatic, have charisma, and use their natural abilities or maybe even their spiritual gifts just to elevate themselves. They're not interested in uh, ministering to others, but only themselves. Uh, and Matthew 7, 21 through 23 is very chilling because there, is, there are those, and this is very interesting, some of these scriptures kind of blow you away. Uh, Jesus says there will become a time where some will come to him and say, Jesus, in your name, we prophesied. We cast out demons. We did wonders in your name. And Jesus said, well, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, the name of Jesus is very powerful, right? But some don't use it in a proper fashion, all right? Now, again, I don't want to mess with you, especially if you're not a believer that long. I don't want you to panic and think that you could wake up one morning and lose your salvation because you did something wrong. You know, I don't feel like I'm saved today. Maybe I left the salvation under the blankets, but I can't find it. It doesn't work like that. These people know what they're doing. They're using God's gifts. They're using the gospel, and some false teachers will use the pulpits to amass millions and become wealthy and take care of themselves. And it's really not about Jesus. It's about themselves. And that's reflected in the, in the refusal to use the scripture and just use analogies and anecdotes and things to that nature from the pulpit. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with as the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He kind of puts an amen there, so be it. It's such a powerful statement that he, he, he leaves it with an amen, but then he moves on from there. In the same vein, uh, communication, speaking, someone's a good orator. They speak as the oracles of God. They speak with God's precepts as the foundation, especially when it's spoken in a church assembly. God's word needs to be used, the oracles of God. And when you minister, what does ministering mean? It just means serving, serving others, right? When we minister, we do it with the ability that God provides. So to serve God and serve each other. Now, <laughs> there are some, um, you know, the older I get, the less I'm impressed with technology and the more I'm impressed with nature, with what God has put here. And I can see more complexity in what God has made than what man has made. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm a beekeeper. And every once in a while, I'll open up the cover of the beehive and it's mayhem. There's like tens of thousands of these little things running around. But, and usually when you take, you're taking their roof off so they fly around and some of them try to sting you. Uh, but the point is that I saw on top of one of the frames two bees in the midst of the chaos, and this is very common. They, were, they looked like they were kissing, and I looked closer. <laughs> yeah, I know, why I do these things? And that's why I come in and my eye is swollen, right? <laughs> and I looked closer, and uh, well, bees have mandibles. They, they can chew, but they also have tongues. They can lap up uh, water and fluids and nectar like a dog. And what they were doing, one was regurgitating the honey, and the other one, they were tongue to tongue, he was feeding the other bee. They actually did a study and they used a drop of radioactive honey and put it in a beehive. And within 24 hours, every bee had some of that honey. They could test it. So what they do is they take care of each other. So another video, <laughs> this blew me away. It was on a busy highway. I don't know if you've seen this, it's been going around. And there was a dog got hit by a car. The dog's in the street and all these vehicles are flying. So this other dog sees the dog get hit by a car, and he, he makes his way like Frogger across the traffic, right? Gets to the other dog, kind of lifts him up, and drags him off the highway. 
What's sad, though, is you can see videos of a guy getting stabbed in New York City, and I've seen another one recently. I, I don't just watch videos all day, but <laughs> I have to find something in, in to put together in the message, right? <laughs> that wasn't that funny. Uh, <laughs> okay, this is the last video. Guy gets, and this is, this is common, I mean, especially in city-type environments with other people around. A person got stabbed and, uh, or assaulted, or whatever the case may be, the person falls down and literally bleeds to death while people on the street are stepping over him, walking around him, pretending they don't see him. This is all on video, because they don't want to get involved. So it's amazing how much we can learn about ministering from what God has created. He put it in the bees. He put it in the dogs. He put it, you see these weird things about um, uh, a, a cat nursing bunnies or a pig nursing cats. You know, what they'll do is they'll take care of each other in the, in the animal and the insect kingdom. I think humans sometimes can learn a little bit of a lesson about ministering from God's so-called lesser creations. Don't get mad at me, animal lovers, for that term. Uh, but this is the cure for self-centeredness. In the last five verses, what did we see the absence of? The word me or I. If you notice that. In the last five verses, it was all about how we can bless somebody else other than myself. So our desire is to glorify God. We make him look good. And, uh, you know, that addresses needs other than me. At the same uh, token, by being other-centered is a result of the Holy Spirit working within me. And we do it with the ability that God supplies. And that's important. Because you will find, if you haven't already, when you try to serve and you think you're doing the right thing and it's not in the power of God, it's happened to me, you get burnt out. You know, you want to serve, you want to bless others, you do what you believe you're called to do, but if we don't do it with the power of God, it's, it can be very difficult work. So we need to understand that. Verse 12, beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. Now, We've covered being spirit-filled, changed life, other-centered. Now here comes the trials. Foundations built, here goes the trials. Peter's encouragement is for those maybe who are isolated in the Roman uh, world. They're at the far reaches of the Roman kingdom. The letter is being circulated. Uh, they feel maybe alone. Uh, maybe some of them aren't very strong-walking Christians. And these letters were designed to build up their faith and strengthen them and encourage them maybe frightened because they're going through persecution. And what he's saying is don't think it's strange or unusual. If we're persecuted, sometimes the first reaction, especially if it's a group, especially if it's a group of those that used to be our friends, we, we tend to feel there's something wrong with me. I'm doing something wrong. These are my friends. How can this be happening to me? Certainly if the government or other uh, forces are persecuting you and you're all by yourself, right? It doesn't mean it's wrong. You may feel weird about it. You may feel ashamed. But Peter is encouraging them, saying this is actually not uncommon. When you raise your hand, and I've had this discussion with many men and women, when you raise your hand and say, I want to serve the Lord, don't be surprised if problems occur. And Satan will use those even closest to you to try to unnerve you and undo you and remove your commitment to the Lord. That's his job. So don't think it's strange. Verse 13 but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. But rejoice. We often want to emulate our Savior, and this is another facet to it. Consider it worthy when we suffer. Jesus says the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, if they give me a hard time, they're going to do the same thing to you because you follow my lead. So don't think it's strange. When his glory is revealed. Now, 
Acts 5.41 said, the apostles departed from the council and rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. They rejoiced because they, they were considered worthy. When he talks about the glory revealed, if you, if you remember back to our Revelation study uh, and chapter four and the door opens and John is brought into the throne room of heaven, boy, that was mind-blowing. And when we talked about that, we kind of got a picture of the sea of glass and the living creatures and the angels and the host and really the indescribable, incredible aura, um, a picture of, of who God is, who, who the lamb is. And, and we were blown away, but those were just words on a page. Imagine actually being there. I can just picture John just like blown away and the Holy Spirit had to say, hey, relax, this is what you gotta do, write this down. So the glory that is gonna be revealed and for, verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. If the world is controlled by Satan and they are persecuting you and they're worldly, Consider yourself worthy. Rejoice, because if, if, if you have the devil as your enemy and the demonic realm and those who are influencing people, and they're your enemy, well, you're doing something right. Doesn't that make sense? Uh, rejoice, and these are meant to be encouraging. I believe that when I read Fox's Book of Martyrs and the Christian Martyrs, that I, I read some of the stories about them being burned alive and all the tortures and them singing hymns and rejoicing, I'm like, man, in the flesh, I don't understand that. But I believe, and I've come to the conclusion And reading this, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon them. They get a special dispensation of grace, of encouragement, of excitement. When Stephen, the first martyr, was being stoned to death, he looked, at, he looked up and he saw a heaven opening up. This guy's getting pelted with stones, bleeding, bruised, bones are cracking, yelling and screaming at him. And he... All that noise just is not even available to him. He just sees heaven open up, and, and, he, and he's blown away by what he sees, the Son of Man sitting at the right. That's all he can see while he's getting stoned to death. So uh, if that was it to ever happen to any of us, God would, I believe, give us that special dispensation of grace. Now, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. So we have a right type of suffering, and now we have what I call tangential sufferings. Suffering because you did something wrong. You know, if you got caught shoplifting and you got arrested, you deserve that. There's no glory in that. There's no honor in that. If we suffer for doing evil, which God tells us not to do, we can't say, oh, I'm suffering because I'm a believer. Uh-uh. And, and I've seen people do that. It doesn't work that way. You're suffering because you did something wicked and you got punished for it. Now, I, I looked at this and I, I mused over it a little bit and some, a thought that just kept coming back to me and I was like, I don't know. It just kept coming back to me. And he says, don't suffer as a murderer and an evildoer. That's very odd for him to put that in there. Because we're for, if we're murderers after receiving the Holy Spirit or evildoers, or that's our lifestyle, certainly we're out of God's will. And two, we're not an example of Christ. And all I could think of through this whole thing was, and I don't know if you know your European history, was the religious wars from 1524 to 1648. It covered the Protestant Reformation. It covered the Peasant Wars. It covered the Thirty Years' Wars. It covered women being dunked and burned at the stake for being witches. 
We say, wait a minute, that happened here. Yeah, but it didn't start here. It started there. Uh, 30% of Germany lost its population in this time period. And why? Because of religion. Now, let's find the difference here between religion and having a true walking faith and relationship with Jesus as our Lord and Savior. There is a difference. I'll just go into a little bit of it. Um, the popes over the years, you can go into Catholic archives. There's no hiding this. Uh, if you go into the Catholic encyclopedia, they'll tell you about the anti-popes, a string of popes who were bloodthirsty, wicked, and with their maddening power, many were, millions were killed under their control. Nobody denies it. Uh, what you find, too, is that during the Protestant Reformation, when uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin received power, and they had power over councils and towns and, and, and some influence over countries, they also got a drink of that maddening power, that absolute power, and by their hands or their decrees or their followers, uh, many were also murdered. Now, what I find interesting about all this is that it was over biblical interpretation and doctrine. And the, the uh, excuse for both camps was that, well, we were killing heretics. Now, let me just put this in perspective for you. Killing heretics. When I was in East Brunswick, I lived on a busy street, Every Saturday morning, heretics would show up at my door, knock on it, and say, we'd like to tell you about Jesus Christ. I'd open the door, they'd come in. They were anti-Trinitarian. I confirmed that they were heretics. The thought never occurred to me, I'd like to tie that person to a stake and watch them burn slowly over the next few hours. So let's put this in perspective. How did the, the idea of what's right and wrong get messed up because at the time people were preaching false doctrine? Our desire is to win people to Christ. When did Jesus ever say that we could engage? Listen, sometimes as believers, we need to face the ugliness of Christian history. And, and I say that word Christian loosely. I don't say Christian proper. So what you have here is um, even today, some of that uh, doctrine was anti-Semitic. I don't know if you're familiar with replacement theology. That's really starting to catch on. And that theology says basically that we don't have any use for the Jews. But what happens is uh, we can't rectify the fact that God's promises to Israel still have to come to pass because we can't make God a liar. So what we'll do is we'll take the church and use the church to replace Israel. That's called replacement theology. And look at the, you know, do your homework, look at the studies, go over to Europe right now and see the anti-Semitism that is skyrocketing, especially in France, in Europe. It's happening all over again. History repeats itself, right? What's really sad is that those on both camps, and I've seen this, they don't know their history. They romanticize the glory days of the church in Europe, whether the Protestant church or the Catholic church. There was nothing glorious about those days. You know, I understand the concerns of the atheists and the secularists and the unbelievers when they're afraid that the Christians may take over this country. And I'll tell you why. There's a difference between a theocracy and an ecclesiocracy. Understand, I want a theocracy. I want God to come back, and he will, and rule righteously. I don't want ecclesiocracy. I don't want religious men running this country because it's, pri it's pretty frightening when we've seen it happen. And... Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptist, correct me if I'm wrong, 1801, letter to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptist congregation telling them about the separation of church and state. Now follow this. It isn't what the, what the secularists are trying to say. What he was saying was, unlike Europe, 
Don't worry, Baptists. We're not going to have a denomination running this country. We will set up uh, Judeo-Christian values, and we will live by those laws, but don't worry. What you saw in Europe is not going to happen here. That is the proper context for that word separation of church and state. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It was a letter, right? So we, we need to understand our history. So I just would say this. Sinful man always needs to find something more than God has for him. It could be power, it could be more knowledge than God's given him, it could be something where man believes that God is holding out on him. We saw it in the garden. We saw it in Babylon. We saw it even with the Gnostics when Christianity was taking root in the first few centuries. They had this esoteric, you know, you follow us, you're not getting it in a regular Bible-believing church. We have this secret knowledge. Stay away from the fads. Stick with God's word, because that is the only thing that is going to keep us on the right track. So, moving on. Verse 15. He says, also, don't suffer as a thief. Well, why is that a problem? Because when you steal, stealing is really the physical manifestation of covetousness. You understand? You have something I want. I don't have it. So... I'm going to break into your house at night, try not to leave too much evidence, and take what you have. I'm going to steal. And when you steal, you say to God, you don't, you're not a good provider. Think about that. Why do we do the things that we do? Behaviorism. When you steal, it's because you feel either you deserve something that you don't have or God is holding out on you. So if you're a believer, don't suffer as a thief. And also a busybody or a meddler. This is an interesting word, and it seems trivial compared to the other three, but it's not. The Greek word literally, when you take, break it up into its component parts, means another bishop. So you are acting as someone else's bishop, their overseer. Somebody who's a busybody or a meddler and always has to be in everyone's business, they have control issues. They have to know what you're doing. They have to tell you what their advice for you is. They want to have some type of dominance over another person. So it's not as trivial as we think we may look at as, uh, on, on first glance. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Judgment starts with the house of God, and it should. Right? The judgment on earth, as believers, we will be disciplined. If we're way out of his will and we call ourselves Christians, he will love us enough to, to discipline us. But also judgment in the form of, we read this in Corinthians, where some will basically get to heaven by just barely escaping the fire. They are saved. They did trust in Jesus and their Lord and Savior. They don't really have any rewards. They didn't really do much with their life. They're scarcely saved. Now, being held to a higher standard as believers, we should be. And, and I'll look at the rationale here. In other words, sort of like being a police officer. If you are under the color of authority, which is what they call it, and you do something that would be considered a disorderly person's offense, it's not even a crime, maybe a, a simple assault, uh, a theft of a minor item, you actually could lose your job as a police officer and go to jail. Wait a minute, that doesn't happen to anybody else. Yes, but the police are held to a higher standard. They have that power and authority of the government, in our country at least. Now, as Christians, the the same applies. We can't do what everybody else does, having the Holy Spirit, calling ourselves believers, and just blow it off 
Hey, it's under the blood. That's not the attitude we're supposed to have. Judgment starts with the household of God. And where does that leave the ungodly and the sinner with no sacrifice for their sins? The answer is, at Calvary Chapel Crossfields, we're not afraid to preach about hell. If you've rejected God, if you've rejected his sacrifice through Jesus Christ, that's all that awaits you. And we'll give you an opportunity at the end of this service to give your heart to the Lord and start walking with him. It is what it is. So, in, in, in closing, the bottom line is uh, Peter is trying to encourage them not to worry so much about suffering here or who it's coming from because we commit ourselves to our faithful creator and trust him, as the Bible says here. God will right all the wrongs in the end, and his justice is sure. We always have questions. What about the person that didn't hear that was in some remote region? My answer is God is just. And I think in Romans, I believe it's one or two, uh, it does speak about that God has left his signature so people will at least be aware of who he is, and he'll be a righteous judge. I believe that there won't be anybody who gets a a bad deal in the judgment. That's my opinion of, of what I know of the character of God. So in closing eternity. Eternity is a very long time. As a matter of fact, when we were, before the Big Bang Theory, if you remember, there were other theories, right? The evolutionists said that, you know, an apple can't turn into an orange. So we must, if we give it a lot of time, million years, billion years, a trillion years, maybe an apple can turn into an orange. Now we know that can never happen, but that's their rationale. Originally, before the Big Bang, they said that, you know, the past and when this happened, really, it was an infinite amount of time. Just going to give you a little um, high school physics and, and we'll move on from there. Remember in school when you had the timeline and it said, you are here, 2010. If you go this way, there's an eight and it's on its side and there's a plus sign. That means positive infinity. If you go this way in the past, there's an eight on its side and a negative sign that's negative infinity. What the evolutionist said was there was an infinite amount of time and we eventually from sea slime, we became people. Right, that's their rationale. Now, they had to change that because if you know physics, that if you go back to infinity, you never get to today. Does that kind of weird you out a little bit? See, our finite minds are, have a hard time with the infinite. So if you go back to infinity, you never, ever reach today because that's endless. Isn't that weird? So, of course, they had to say, well, the Big Bang happened because uh, we had to start somewhere. But then we said, well, where, 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 where did nothingness get the materials from? Well, we still don't know the answer to that one either. So there's a problem. But what I'm trying to get to is that eternity is a long time. Let me just talk about our present sufferings. I don't want to minimize what anyone's going through, financial, health, loss of love, whatever the case may be. But when we, in 2010, when we step into eternity and it all ends and eternity goes on and on and on, our lives become smaller. And You know, when you're driving away from something, what you're seeing gets smaller and smaller if it's not moving eventually our problems will pretty much disappear and we'll be in eternity. Doesn't that make you feel good? So there's a perspective check, right? There's a perspective check. Do our fleshly desires, you know, those of us struggling with addictions or uh, pride issues or uh, kleptomania, whatever the case may be, you know, meddling, our fleshly desires in light of eternity, do they really mean that much right now? No. Does our instinct for survival, in the case of the martyred Christians, and this is where God is is giving them that special dispensation of grace. Stephen, as he's being stoned to death, sees heaven open up and, and, and the son sitting at the right hand of the father, and he knows he's going to be there any minute. His life, it, this doesn't mean that much anymore. 
are problems here, right now, what you're going through today? How much impact do you think we'll have when you step into eternity? None. Our persecutors here that maybe are right now very scary, the Goliaths in our lives, when we step into eternity, nothing. Brothers and sisters, I want to read three verses and then I'm going to wrap it up. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. He says, therefore, the Apostle Paul, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. We're getting geared up for eternity. God is doing something in us, right? He's getting us used to and acclimated to his eternity. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We are representatives. It is an honor for me for God to put me here and represent him, to speak about his word, to witness to others. And and sometimes I do a poor job, but he still has me in the job. It's pretty amazing. We are representatives. We are ambassadors of the almighty God and his kingdom. And we are representing his kingdom to all the countries of the world. That's an impressive job. Right? If the president tapped you and asked you to do that, you'd be like, wow, why would you pick me? But that's what is available to us in a far greater capacity. So let us live as such, notwithstanding our circumstances. Let's pray. Father.